Well, good morning. <laughs> it's a joy of mine to be able to be in front of my family today. If you have your Bibles, if you're a great benefit and joy, I would ask you to open up to Luke 11, 29 to 36. Luke 11, 29 to 36. If you don't have a Bible, we have pew Bibles in front of you, or maybe your neighbor will share. If you're new to navigating the Bible this morning, we have the books in the top corner. The chapters are the big numbers, and the verses are the small ones. We are in the book of Luke, chapter 11, verses 29 to 36. Would you please stand in honor and respect for God's holy and errant word being read, if you are able. Luke, being carried along by the Holy Spirit, writes these words. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, Something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation to condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. And would you pray with me? Our Father, we're just thankful for the word of God, we're just thankful for how you've revealed yourself in it, for how you've given your gospel concerning Christ, your son, that we might be saved through faith in him, by your grace alone. Father, we pray that today we might see Christ as precious, we might be amazed at him, or that we would follow you and be better disciples more faithful, more obedient disciples of Christ today than we were before. Lord, help us to be about the preaching of your gospel in our lives, to see its necessity for unbelievers, to see its primacy as the way that you work in the world, and to see its importance for us to live it out and to preach it to others, we pray today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing in our series on true discipleship. This is the last installment of this series. And last time we saw that upon seeing the kingdom of Christ come into the world, there are two responses 
that show two types of people. There are disciples and there are doubters. There are those who marvel and those who do not believe. And Jesus responded to the first group of doubters saying that he cast out demons by Beelzebul with what we went over last week, by drawing a line in the sand, by saying that I do not only not cast out demons by Beelzebul, but I cast out by the finger of God. That means I bring the kingdom. And the kingdom has these effects, namely the defeat of Satan, the salvation of believers, the judgments of unbelievers. You cannot be on both sides of the line. You have to be wholly and completely in submission to Christ and his kingdom and his lordship, or else you are still subject to the condemnation that he speaks of. You cannot just have your house swept out by by yourself or by your own morality, but you must have it completely destroyed, a complete gut job of your heart because you've been taken over by Christ and his rule. And then in the verses following, Jesus responds to the second group of doubters who said, we need a sign from you. And that's why he starts off in verse 29 by saying, this generation is evil because it seeks a sign. And it seems that today it's, it's fitting that we conclude our series on discipleship with this passage because we began at this, um, a series in Luke 10 where we talked about with Mary and Martha and Jesus and the importance of being devoted to the word as disciples of Christ, about choosing the good portion of sitting at Jesus' feet daily. And we moved into prayer, being devoted to God word, God glorifying, boldly expectant prayer. And then last week, as we just talked about, we, we talked about the coming of the kingdom and being submitted to Christ and his lordship and all the glorious blessings that come with the kingdom. And as we have moved from the primary spiritual discipline of reading the Bible and being in the word and to prayer and outward and onward, we go to the outward display of the gospel to others. seems it makes sense that you would end up here. And that's where we're going to be today. The main idea of Luke 11, 29 to 36 is that true disciples know the true preached gospel and live like it. True disciples know the true preached gospel and live like it. And I have been so helpfully told that I spend way too short a time on this slide. So I'm going to give you guys plenty of time to write that down. This main idea will be seen in two main points and a couple of sub-points. First, the same sign and the greater messenger in 29 to 32, and then one light with two implications. One light with two implications, and that's our outline for today. So before we move on, the zoomed-out picture here that I kind of want to show you, the roadmap of today, is that Jesus is going to respond to those who seek for a sign by first addressing their unbelief, by telling them that they're not believers, and then presenting the gospel that they are rejecting, saying that you are rejecting this gospel, and that's why condemnation will be coming on you. And then he's going to admonish his disciples to live faithful lives that are centered on this preached gospel, and that ultimately live evangelistically to others. So he's saying, you are unbelievers, the preached gospel is what you're rejecting, disciples, you ought to live in light of this preached gospel. That is the movement of the passage. And so first point, the same sign, greater messenger. And in this text first, we're going to see the necessity of the preached gospel. The necessity of the preached gospel. 
Jesus starts with addressing the people's unbelief. The crowds were increasing. The people were coming in to see more of this Jesus guy. Who? What else does he have to offer? What other signs can he do for us? They think he's doing some pretty spectacular stuff. But Jesus, unlike other places in the Gospels where he sees the crowds and he has compassion on them, they're like sheep without a shepherd. He looks at them and he says, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign. They weren't there to find salvation for their souls. They weren't sheep looking for a shepherd. They weren't there to behold the Son of God. They, were, they weren't even there to joyfully receive the Son of Man or to, to joyfully marvel at His wondrous works. They were there for a sign. They didn't believe that Jesus is who He said He is. They don't think that he brings the kingdom. They say, perhaps I would think that you, brought, that you bring the kingdom, that you are who you say you are, if you would just show me one more sign. Just show me something else, then I'll believe. But what more could they want, though? Jesus cast out a demon. Made a mute man speak. He shows that his power is from God. He even, we talked about last week, he used very masterful logic to show them that he, he is the Son of Man that brings the kingdom. He told them about the kingdom. He told them about the good news, about he is a strong man that defeats Satan, that he is the one who brings salvation for those who believe in him. He clearly draws a line in the sand. And what do they do? They don't respond in wonder. They don't respond in amazement. They might be entertained maybe by the miracles that he is doing, but they just continue to gather and gather just seeking a sign from him. They say, do it again, Jesus. Do another miracle. Heal me. Make my children well. Perform more miracles for us. Do things for me if you're really the Son of God. We know that you already preached the good news to us, but we want something more than what you've already given. We want something more than that. This just shows the darkness of their hearts and how they are spiritually blind. It shows that they're an evil generation that do not believe. Their hearts are darkened. You can see they don't want Christ for who he is and the salvation that he brings. And one of the the first things, one of the one aspects I want you to see here is that they want Christ for his benefits. They don't want Christ for who he is. They want Christ for his benefits. And this is a very easy pit for people to fall into, even us today. The many blessings of the gospel are amazing and awesome, and sure, we should be thankful for them. All the things we talked about last week, we should be gloriously thankful for these things every day. But if the blessings of the gospel become more important than Christ himself, that's a big, big issue. God is the greatest good of the gospel. Nothing and no one else is. He is the greatest good. The glory and praise go to him and to him alone, not to his blessings. But these people are blind to that. And they see that Jesus offers something of value, but they don't see that Jesus himself as the Lord is valuable in and of himself. They seek for a sign, not realizing that the greatest and best sign has already been standing in front of them. They seek for a a feast, the finest feast, and all they want is table scraps. Their eyes are blind to seeing Christ. And you can see that first in how they 
look for Christ's blessings and not Christ himself. But they also show their unbelief in wanting a sign and how they want to add to the gospel. They take the good news that Christ is preaching, the gospel, that he has come, that he defeats the strong man, that he brings the kingdom, that judgment is coming, that salvation is being brought through him. And they say, well, we want more than just that. Could you give us another sign, please? I need something more than the gospel. When you demand more than the good news of Christ, you are adding to the gospel, friends. And today we see that all over the place. In this pluralistic age, whether it's the Pentecostal belief that you have to have spiritual, um, special spiritual gifts or experiences in order to be saved, whether you think that baptism is necessary for your salvation, or maybe you think that you have to partake of communion in order to be saved, that those physical signs of obedience are actually necessary for salvation. And there are even those today that actually teach directly opposite of what Paul teaches in Galatians and say that you actually have to follow the law to be saved. You have to not eat fish and not get tattoos and all these other things to be saved. Friends, if you were anything like this at all, it is satanic garbage that is not taught in the Bible whatsoever. For Titus 3, 5 says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's Jesus himself. His very first words in his public ministry is repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe. So brothers and sisters, do not be like these people that Jesus is talking to here. For they are an evil generation that they only seek for a sign. They want to add to the gospel and they want Christ for all of his benefits, but not for his person himself. And because of this, we see the necessity for the preached gospel. That's why Jesus says, You're an evil generation, but the only sign you're going to be given is the sign you've already been given. It's me. It's the gospel that I preach. Because the only way for unbelievers to become believers is by the preached gospel of Christ. That by hearing they might have faith. And next, we also see the primacy of the preached gospel here. It's not only absolutely necessary, but it also has primacy. It's the, it's the one and only thing above all things, the one sign above all signs. Jesus, in talking to these people, gives the different elements of the true gospel that Christians must live out evangelistically. So the preached gospel is primary. It is a necessity because of unbelief. And as primacy, as in there is no other message to accept, reject, or preach. It is the only one. The standard for being in and out of the kingdom of God is nothing else except what you believe about the gospel, about the preached gospel of Christ. It has that primacy. No other sign will be given, and therefore it alone should be preached This is seen through the people's condemnation because of their rejection of the preached gospel of Christ and also through the content of the gospel that Christ implicitly tells here. So Jesus continues in the verse in saying that he is going to be assigned to the people just as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites. But what did Jonah do in front of the Ninevites? Did he do anything special? No, he preached the gospel to them. 
preached the gospel to them. And he goes on to describe how the only way for unbelievers to be saved is, notice if you see in verse 31, to hear. She came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And then in verse 32, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. The only way for unbelievers to be saved is by hearing this gospel and repenting because of it. And the queen of the south here that he talks about is the queen of Sheba in 1 Kings 10, verses 1 through 13. The queen of Sheba comes from a long distance simply because she hears of the wisdom of Solomon that Solomon has. And that she heard that this wisdom was from the Lord. And she goes there and she interacts with Solomon. And seeing Solomon's wisdom, she says that, well, the first king says, there was no breath in her. It took her breath away. Sounds like a little bit of marveling, maybe. A little bit of amazement. And it doesn't stop there. She goes on to say, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. So now there's belief. And behold, the half was not told me. I haven't even heard half of what you actually are, what your wisdom actually is. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy or blessed are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loves Israel forever, he has made you king that he might execute justice and righteousness through you. So she sees the wisdom of God in Solomon and she extols Solomon. She believes in the wisdom She says that all those who live under his wisdom are happy and blessed. And she says, praise the Lord. She blesses God through this. And she also notices what about the Lord and his reign? That there's a reign of justice and of righteousness. So the wisdom that God gave Solomon caused this woman to travel from so far a distance, to believe in that wisdom, to rejoice in the Lord and bless his name, and to recognize his just and righteous rule over all people. And Jesus says, someone even greater than Solomon is here. Jesus referring to himself, he is the one that is greater than Solomon. While Solomon had wisdom from God, Jesus is the wisdom of God himself. 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Then also later in verse 30, Christ became to us wisdom from God. So if the Queen of Sheba traveled, this is what Jesus is saying here, if the Queen of Sheba traveled so far and long, to see Solomon's wisdom that was from the Lord. And that wisdom had an effect on her of belief, of amazement, of of marveling at God, of seeing his righteous and just rule. Then how much more should Christ himself, preaching his gospel, have that effect on you? But it doesn't. And so you're going to face some serious condemnation because even she believed and she didn't have me. She didn't have Christ in front of her. These people want something else. They want a sign that all they're going to get is terrible judgment because of that, because of their unbelief, not seeing Christ for what he is. 
But also, he continues with this theme of condemnation with Jonah. He says, same thing. Jonah preached the gospel to the Ninevites, and they repented, and yet you don't repent, and I am here. So they hear the gospel from Jonah, the Ninevites do, very briefly preached. Very briefly, as we read today. And yet the Gentile nation, who is wicked beyond belief, turns to repentance and belief in God for their salvation. Remember, when Mike read, he preaches and they immediately believe God. And the king says, let us all turn and relent from our evil ways. Maybe God will relent from his calamity over us. Indeed, you would think that Israelites would be able to know that this is the one who God told them about. That even Gentile Ninevites were able able to figure that out and they didn't even have Jesus in front of them. Jesus says, these Ninevites who repent of the preaching of Jonah, they will rise up in judgment against you. The only thing you can expect is condemnation because you heard the one whom the gospel was about preaching the gospel and yet you still don't repent. So friends, don't be like this evil generation. Have you repented and believed in Christ because he has come He has come preaching his gospel concerning himself. If you don't, you can only expect judgment. The point of this passage is not only that judgment is to come on unbelievers, but that judgment is going to come on unbelievers for what they rejected. They didn't reject some social gospel, some health and wealth stuff. They didn't reject a belief about music. They didn't reject a belief about baptism or communion or whatever. They rejected the preaching of the gospel, which is why they're facing such a great condemnation because they're rejecting it from Christ himself. And that shows, I hope you see that, that shows the primacy of the preached gospel. They rejected that, and that is why they're being judged. Because the gospel is primary. The preaching of the gospel is the one sign But also in this conversation, we see what the gospel is, what this primary preached gospel is. Obviously, they've missed the point, but disciples, as Jesus will get into in the next verses, in one unbroken thought, we have not missed the point, and we're supposed to live out this preached gospel in our lives. So what is it? First of all, we see that it is the wisdom from God. As we talked about with the Queen of the South, That Jesus is not only wise, but he is the wisdom. He is wisdom defined. He's wisdom itself. He's the one whom, before the foundations of the world, he was the plan of salvation for Jew and Gentile alike. He is the message of the eternal wisdom of God. Not only is he the wisdom of God, but he says that he is the one that is greater He says twice, something greater is here. Someone greater is here. I am the greater messenger, the greater wisdom, the greatest revelation of the divine nature, the greatest king, the greatest judge, the greatest preacher, the greatest bringer of righteousness. He's saying the gospel is about me. I am the one that is greater. I am the wisdom. I am the one who this message is about. You need no other sign, friends, but Jesus Christ himself, because the gospel is about him. He is the gospel. He is sufficient for everything required for your salvation. 
for your eternal joy, for your everlasting life. He is the perfect imprint of God's nature. When we see him, we see the Father. He is our perfect peace, the precious lamb, the sympathetic and great high priest, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, our redemption, our author and finisher of our faith, our righteousness, our sanctification, our perfect savior, the wisdom of God, the good news, the one who brings judgment and salvation. We need no other sign. He is the gospel. We need no other gift. We need not test him. Nothing. It's all about him. Christ is sufficient. The glory goes to him. Preaching of the gospel has primacy because he is preeminent. Because Christ, who is the gospel, is preeminent. So when if you reject Christ, you face condemnation. Second, the message of Judgment and salvation is the content of the gospel. This is a huge point here. He says that the gospel is the same thing as the preaching of Jonah. And what did Jonah preach? Eight words. Forty days you have, Nineveh, and you're done. You're overthrown. That's it. And they believed in God. Hey, judgment is coming around the bend. That's it. That's the gospel, friends. Because what is implicit and assumed in the warning is repentance and salvation. He doesn't need to say it. He says, judgment is coming. Repent and believe. That God might turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we might not perish. The proper response to the gospel is true repentance and believing in God. Friends, the gospel is not God loves you, believe in him. The gospel is not, Jesus loves you and wants to be your buddy. Ask him into your heart. The gospel is, you are a sinner against the holy God. And friend, judgment is coming. It's on its way. But good news, Jesus Christ is the way out. God has offered a way of salvation for you if you would repent of your sin and you would turn and relent from your wickedness and your evil ways. And you would turn in faith and believe in God and his source of salvation, namely Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins, that you might have righteous standing before him. If a gospel presentation does not include judgment, friends, it is not a gospel presentation. If a gospel presentation does not include judgment and salvation, it is not a gospel presentation. Isaiah 61, which Jesus reads from in Luke 4. We see this so clearly. He says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. What is that? He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which includes what? The day of vengeance of our God. So the gospel, the good news, is both judgment and salvation. The proclamation of judgment and salvation. That is why the first words of Jesus' mouth in the public are, repent, repent, because judgment's coming. And the true disciples know that. Because in order to repent of their evil ways, they had to be told they were evil. Friends, we know this. If you are saved, you have understood palpably the real judgment of God. 
and you have said, I'm going to repent. Lord, repent. I repent and I believe in you. Save me. So do you remember, friends, that that is the gospel? Do you live your lives as if that is the gospel? Whenever you share the gospel with others, do you share it like that? Do you preach like Jonah? Don't be afraid of its offensiveness because it's guaranteed to be offensive to those who it's folly to. It's supposed to be offensive until those people recognize that they are worthy of judgment and need of salvation. So friends, that's the only sign. That means that if it's the only sign that unbelievers will receive, it's the only sign that we can believe and that we can preach. Don't fall into the lie that there are other ways to heaven in this pluralistic age, that there is another standard on which our entrance into the kingdom of heaven rises and falls on. Because Jesus says it's the only one. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ about judgment, about a call to repentance, about salvation, about Christ himself. That is the true gospels, the true gospel that true disciples know. So Jesus addresses their unbelief, gives the true gospel implicitly, and then in one unbroken thought, he moves on to one light and two implications. He moves on to say that those who know the true gospel have been changed by it. You ought to live in this way. You ought to live pure lives, but not only pure lives, but pure lives with an evangelistic purpose. If the preached gospel is primary, if it has primacy, then those who have been changed by it ought to preach the gospel. That is his logic here. In short, Jesus is going to say that the gospel is like a light. You see here that he says... No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. And this is the start of another kind of logical flow here. He kind of says this as a general phrase. Like, obviously, this is true. Nobody goes into a room with a lamp that's dark, and they want to see, and then cover the light up. It makes no sense. That's the start of his, his next analogy And first, we're going to see here in this passage that there is a personal implication before there is a public one. First implication is one that is personal. After that first phrase, he says, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. So if an eye is healthy, that means the whole body is full of light. And if an eye is healthy, that means a darkened eye has looked upon the light of Christ and their eye has been lit aflame and become healthy so that the whole body is full of light. In context, this obviously is describing one who has seen and heard the gospel of Christ, the preached gospel. They've seen the radiance of the glory of Christ shining like light through the preaching of the gospel into their eyes so that they might be lit, their eye might become healthy, that the one sturdy, rotten, and bad, and unhealthy eye that only gave darkness was brought into the light, and they received it. Now the whole body is light. So, conversely, if your body is dark, it's because your eye has seen the light of Christ, your darkened eye has seen it, and has not been lit aflame by God's sovereignty, has not been opened to the light. Your unhealthy eye was not 
lit on fire. Your eye is still unhealthy, and it's not been changed. And Jesus says that means it is still dark. You are still darkness. But then Jesus says, therefore, be careful, lest the light in you is darkness. In light of the fact that the eye is the lamp of your body, in light of the fact that the only thing that lit up the eye is the light of Christ shining forth in the preaching of the gospel, and in light of the fact that if your eye is darkened, your body is also darkened, he says, be careful. Be careful that your light remains light. That your light does not become darkness. That you continue to examine and see the gospel. That you continue to look at Christ and like fuel that keeps on getting added to the fire. You continue to look at Christ and continue to allow light to glow in your body. It's a call to examine what you are consuming due to the possibility of disastrous effects on your soul. As one commentator says, those who would hear Jesus are to be constantly on the watch that they take it in as light, not darkness. That they take in light, not darkness. The great danger is taking in the wrong thing. It's a warning about what you are consuming and how that thing has an effect on your soul. You who have healthy eyes, because you have consumed the light of Christ and now shine forth with that same light, what you continue to consume matters to you. The only thing that is light is Christ. And we receive the light of Christ in the preaching of the gospel. So if you're consuming something that is not serving as a conduit for that light, is not promoting the light of Christ in your heart, then it is only promoting darkness. As in your eye that is healthy will begin to become unhealthy. That your light will begin to dwindle. When the eye is bad, the body is full of darkness. So, continue to behold the light of Christ. Because if you do that, you are continuing to be light. You're going to be turned into a holy, bright body, as he says in verse 36. You have spiritual wisdom and understanding from the one who is wisdom himself. You will have a right fear of God. You have the continuing and deepening desire for him. You will spill over into praise of him. You will continually be amazed at him. That is how you should live. Live lives consumed by the light of Christ. Live lives consumed with the gospel. And the gospel has that personal implication. But also, more importantly, I want to get to the public implication of this passage. Let your light so shine before others is the idea here. The beginning and the ending of this passage have an evangelistic bent. No one after lighting a lamp puts it under a basket, but on a stand. And he says that in verse 36, your, your body will be wholly bright, having this external connotation, shining to others as it gives them light. But how do we cover our light up? How does our light not shine? Answer, we just talked about it. The personal implication directly affects the public one that Jesus is talking about. 
We become darkness. We consume the wrong things. We take in darkness, become darkened ourselves. And then we become ineffective in our purpose of sharing the gospel with others. We have learned one thing as a church through 1 Peter is that our actions and how we live in this world can either, as Zach always says, underline the gospel or we can undermine them, undermine it, how we live. Our lives as we live them, our personal faithfulness and holiness has an evangelistic purpose and bent. It directly affects our evangelism of the lost. So if it doesn't make sense to cover up a a lamp when it's lit, then it also doesn't make sense for you to be a Christian and for your effective evangelism to be made ineffective because of your unholy life, because of the fact that you like to take in darkness instead of taking in light, because of the fact that you're not so consumed with the gospel that you feel the need to share it with others. So many Christians who've had their eyes open and had their their eye made healthy and they see the light and they're lit aflame. They like to stain their testimony and they functionally cover up the light of Christ in their lives. And friends, we all do it. I've been so convicted by this passage because why am I not sharing the gospel as much or why am I not so bold in sharing the gospel? Well, it's probably because I'm not so consumed to it where I see the need for it because I'm letting in more darkness than I am light. Brothers and sisters, we must be careful that we do not consume things that do not promote the light of Christ in our lives. Lest we become darkened, which is bad enough for our personal state, but it's even worse for those who might believe through our testimony, might believe through our preaching of the gospel. It hinders the spread of Christ's kingdom. Remember the children's song? Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. The eyes are the gateway to the heart and to the soul. And if you consume darkness, you'll be characterized by it. So before you consume something, ask the question, does this promote the gospel in my life? Does this thing that I'm about to consume promote the gospel in my life? Does it serve as a conduit of the light of Christ in my heart? The answer to that question not only determines determines how your spiritual state will be affected, but it also determines how your testimony will be effective as well. The necessity of the preached gospel and the primacy of the preached gospel means that the Christian life is to be characterized by the preached gospel. So make your life about it then. If it has primacy, then make your life about it. Make your life about him. Disciples, That's discipleship. Being like Christ is being boldly about him. It's looking like him. It's preaching his gospel. This passage does not teach that we can just be simply personally holy and and never share the gospel. We can just be a testimony through our actions. No, it teaches a non-passive view of our evangelistic lives. It's about proclaiming the only sign to others. The preached and the proclaimed gospel of Jesus Christ that speaks judgment, salvation is primary and is necessary. But our proclamation means nothing if our lives don't back it up. And we will be hindered from proclaiming the gospel to others if our own lives are not at all concerned with the gospel.
So will this TV show, will this movie, will this song, will this social media feed, will this social media platform, will this event, will this device, will this person, will this conversation, will this action, will this gathering, or this thought process that I'm going through, or will whatever I'm putting my hand and my mind and my mouth and my eyes to and my ears to, will whatever it is foster the light of Christ in my heart so I might spread the gospel to others? What if that was the point of discernment that we had every day? And maybe you don't struggle with what maybe you're going to look at, what the movies you're going to watch. Maybe you're really good about that. But will this political conversation help the light of Christ in my heart? Will it be effective for my evangelism? Will this thing not just help my soul but my pers- in my personal battle with sin, but will this thing help me be more about others? Will this thing help others through me? I challenge you to think of those things this week. What in my life is doing this? What in my life is being a, 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 a conduit for the light of Christ in my life? What in my life is cultivating the gospel in my evangelistic discipleship? And what in my life is not doing that? What in my life should be cut off so that I might be more effective? What in my life should be cut off because it's providing darkness in my heart and not light? What in my life is acting as a basket that is covering up the light of Christ in me? Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. Be careful, little tongue, what you say. Be careful, little feet, where you go because your soul and others' souls hang in the balance. Disciples of Jesus Christ, how fitting it is that we would end our time in this series here clarifying the truth of the gospel and admonishing you to spread it to others. To be disciples of Christ, not only personally in your devotion to the word, not only personally in your devotion to prayer, not only personally in your submission to Christ above all, but also publicly in your gospel proclamation to others. From learning to devote ourselves to the word with Mary, praying boldly and expectantly with the disciples, to living in submission to the kingdom of Christ last week, we end here. Knowing the true preached gospel and living like it. So as a close, I would like to remind you of all of our main points that we've gone over through this series. True disciples of Jesus Christ forsake the cares of this world to prize and prioritize sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to his teaching daily. True disciples of Jesus Christ pray Godward in boldly expectant prayers individually and corporately. The kingdom of God brings wonder, faithfulness, and blessedness to disciples in present and future judgment on doubters. And true disciples know the true preached gospel and live like it. Shall we pray together? Our Father, we are thankful for this day. We're thankful that you have made us disciples of Christ. Father, help us to live lives devoted to your word. Help us to live lives devoted to prayer. Help us to live lives in submission to you, which involves being about the preached gospel in our lives, being about sharing it with others, being about Christ himself and not just his blessings. 
Help us to do this faithfully, Father, by your grace and by your spirit, that we might honor and glorify you and exalt your name above all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.